Hi listeners, Jason here. Today for you, we've got an expert series podcast with a twist. Joel and I have been delivering a series of webinars on what Australian companies need to have in place to meet their legal obligations under new psychological health regulations. As all three of the webinars were sold out, there were many disappointed to miss out. So we recorded the last of these webinars and are now pleased to share it via the Psych Health and Safety podcast. In this webinar, we refer to a downloadable cheat sheet. A link to that is provided in the show notes. We have to bring you more exclusive content like this in the near future. Now, on to this episode. From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Welcome along, everyone, today to this latest webinar from Flourish DX. I'm glad that you could all join us today and give us some of your valuable time. Uh, before we get underway with uh, introductions, I just want to do a quick welcome to country. Um, so I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we're on today, the Wadjuk people, Joel and I are calling in from Perth today, uh, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, in terms of uh, today, I'm going to uh, just introduce myself quickly and then I'll get Joel to introduce herself and then we will just take you through a bit of a synopsis before getting into it. So for those I haven't met before, my name is Jason Vanshee. I'm the Managing Director of, of Flourish DX. Uh, I'm a psychologist and I've been working in the human factors space uh, for about 15 years now with a specific focus on psychosocial risk management for, uh, oh, I don't know, about six or seven years now too. Uh, with me though, uh, we have our internal subject matter expert on regulations, uh, which is perfect for the topic that we have today, Joelle Mitchell. So Joelle, welcome. Thank you. Uh, so if you could just maybe give a quick introduction. Sure. So I'm the Global Head of Psychological Health and Safety here at uh, Flourish DX. Um, the reason that I'm on this call is before I joined Flourish DX, I was working with NOPSEMA, which is the regulator for the offshore petroleum industry um, here in Australia. Uh, I was employed with them for nine years as a human factors specialist in their safety and integrity division. Uh, so that's why I'm speaking about uh, what you can expect if uh, a psychosocial inspector comes to visit. Yeah, and you've definitely done your fair share of inspections, so I think it will be very relevant. And hopefully there's a few uh, people from the different inspectorates around Australia getting some notes from you today as well about some of the questions <laughs> they should be asking. I'm, I'm sure they don't need that. I just hope they don't um, tell me off afterwards for giving incorrect information. <laughs> well, uh, they haven't so far from the first two runs of this, uh, no. this webinar, so um, I think we're good. So look, uh, just for those people who are jumping on, uh, essentially we've got one hour with you today. We'll be finishing up at the hour. Um, Joel and I will be talking for about 50 minutes, uh, taking you through a number of uh, practical things you should be considering to have in place and to be able to evidence um, should you have a psychosocial inspector uh, visit, and then we'll be opening it up for formal Q&A. Um, now, just because we've got a formal Q&A section at the end, don't feel that you can't ask questions during. So if you want to have, if you have any pertinent questions as we go through, Joelle and I are pretty good at keeping an eye on the chat. So just drop your questions in the chat and uh, we'll try and pick them up as we go if we can. Um, what you'll notice on a number of the PowerPoints today is that there is a QR code. The QR code is to our uh, cheat sheet, which is a one-page downloadable resource which has 10 questions that you should be asking yourself as an organisation uh, whether you have these things in place and whether you can evidence them. Uh, but the, what we're going to be doing today is actually going through each of those in turn, talking about why they're important 
and giving you some examples of how you can provide evidence that you are doing those activities. Cool. So um, in terms of um, uh, just before we get into it, for those of you who aren't familiar with Flourish DX, uh, essentially we are an end-to-end -end provider of psychological health and safety services. What we do is that we blend consulting uh, with people like Joelle and Alicia, who's not on the call today, and myself and, and others, uh, with education and technology to help our clients to achieve a psychologically healthy and safe workplace that prevents harm to employees and promotes the opportunities for them to flourish at work. Um, we also do a lot of education beyond these webinars, if you're not familiar, through our podcast channel, the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. Uh, Joelle and I have been phoning it in lately because we've got ourselves um, a couple of UK co-hosts who will do alternate uh, fortnights with us. But what you'll find is we've been doing that podcast for over two years. We've had uh, over 100 amazing guests on that podcast. So if you're new to the, the area of psych health and safety and you're seeking to educate yourself, then this is a really great resource uh, with a, a very large um, back catalogue of uh, episodes to get into. I, uh, I don't agree that we've been phoning it in, Jason. We just don't have to do them as frequently. Yeah, we never phone it in. No. Um, well, sometimes we do, but that's yeah. got nothing to do with our UK hosts. You know me. I, I never use our terms inappropriately or incorrectly, Joelle. So um, apologies for the mistake. Um, and apologies to the listeners for my co-host um, and her shenanigans. But, look, in terms of setting the, huh. uh, the, the, the context – uh, as many of you are aware, we have been going through a period of regulatory reform here in Australia um, to bring psych health and safety up to the same level of, as how we manage physical health and safety. This goes all the way back to the, the review done by Marie Boland of the Workplace Health and Safety Act in 2018, uh, where out of 34 recommendations, the second one was, hey, we need regulations dealing specifically with psychological health. Uh, to be very clear, the new regulations do not actually bring about a new obligation for employers. Um, these obligations were always contained in the existing Workplace Health and Safety Act from 2011. Uh, however, um, a lot of organisations didn't feel that they uh, or didn't interpret the definition of health to encompass both psychological health as well as physical health, even though that was definitely the intent. And so now what we've seen is that we've got very specific regulations that are in place in, in many states in Australia, as you can see from this diagram, um, where now it's, it's very explicit, these are the obligations you have if you employ people uh, to keep them safe from harm, uh, psychological harm in particular. So most states in Australia now have adopted the model regs. Uh, Northern Territory will adopt on the 1st of July. We're still waiting on timeframes from South Australia, Victoria and uh, the ACT for when they will have uh, either the model regs or equivalent regulations if we're talking about Victoria, which is not part of the Harmonised uh, legislation framework um, uh, in place. But we have heard that you know it is likely within the next three to six months that every state in Australia will have psychological health regulations in place. So with that in mind, uh, we know that the regulators are arming up and, and you probably... Um, and it might just be the echo chamber and who I follow on LinkedIn uh, that I'm seeing a lot of advertising from the various regulators looking for either psychologists to join their team as subject matter experts or uh, psychosocial inspectors specifically to help enforce the new regulations. So we thought with that in mind, uh, given that we're going to be seeing a lot more activity uh, and a lot of people just being unaware of what they need to have in place and what sort of questions the regulators are going to be asking, uh, that this session will actually be really uh, relevant and pertinent to what's going on in Australia in particular at this point. 
So before we um, start going through the 10 questions that we've got within the um, Psych Health and Safety Cheat Sheet, I thought we might just do a quick poll question uh, of the room to see how prepared people are for a visit from a psychosocial inspector. So if you have a look at the poll that we've got here today, uh, the question is, how prepared is your organisation for a visit? Uh, and that might range from we would fail miserably uh, all the way through to that you're actually doing all the activities that you're required and you can evidence that. So just have a think about um, how your organisation re would respond to that at this point in time. Okay, so from 68 people who have responded to that poll, uh, it looks like the majority of people, the vast majority, 57%, are doing some required activities and can provide evidence. So um, missing out on some. There are two people who look like they're very well covered um, who are doing all required activities and can provide evidence. So uh, as always, we'd be very interested to find out who those people are at some point and uh, we'd love to invite them on the podcast <laughs> to talk about their experience. Uh, then it evenly split between doing some relevant activities but don't have the evidence. So definitely then today's session, talking about what does the evidence actually look like is going to be uh, relevant to you. And then uh, many that are unaware of what they would need to see. So again, the cheat sheet is going to be very valuable and going through this webinar as well. Any commentary on that, um, Jewel? Um, yeah, again, probably a similar pattern to the, the last couple of these that we've run. Um, and yeah, I think just, um, I, you know, every time I mention the selection bias where you know, we're likely to see people coming along to um, these sessions who are already engaging with um, this topic and understanding that they're needing to do something. Uh, so I think we've probably got a bit of a skewed response here than if we were looking sort of across all businesses in Australia. Yeah, I would hope if we've got regular attendees of our webinars and listeners of the podcast that they would have, you know, a fair bit of knowledge and hopefully had done some actions uh, internally already. So, um, all right, so let's think then about this, uh, this cheat sheet. So first of all, what we did was we've been looking obviously um, regularly at the different information that the regulators have been sharing regarding, um, you know, what they're expecting of uh, PCBUs, so persons conducting business or undertakings. Uh, we obviously have some great relationships with many of the regulators having uh, actually been on our podcast as well. Uh, and then just reviewing the regulations themselves, as well as the broader Workplace Health and Safety Act, um, to to consider what are the things that you need to have in place from a psych health and safety uh, perspective, and and how would you go about evidencing that? We're also able to draw on uh, Joelle's experience, obviously being an ex-regulator herself with nine years' experience in the human factors area. So what I've got here on this page is the 10 uh, activities uh, that are listed in the cheat sheet. So what we're going to do is go through these in turn, talk about why they're important. And um, Joelle's going to give us some context around that and then also give us some context around what would evidence look like in this space. So you can see that the very first one that we've got here is a documented process for consulting with workers to identify psychosocial hazards, understand exposure and develop control measures. Um, so first of all, if we talk about not just ticking the box, but why would that be important in order to achieve the aims of the, the regulations? Yeah, so um, there is a primary duty under the Work Health and Safety Act to consult with workers who are impacted by or likely to be impacted by um, hazards. So that is 
a, that's a requirement under the Act, which is a stronger instrument than um, than the regulations, and that's not just um, about psychosocial hazards. That that's relating to all hazards. Um, when we're talking about psych hazards, the the consultation process is really critical because there's an interaction between, um, I guess, the presence of a work factor that may or may not be a hazard, um, and whether or not it's a hazard largely depends on um, interpersonal factors for for an individual, um, as well as the presence or absence of other psychosocial factors um, in the workplace. So it, they're they're a little bit different to physical hazards, where we know um, you know if we fall from a particular height. Um, this is going to be the likely impact on the human body um, and, you know, our preference for, for working at height isn't going to have any effect on the impact that that fall is going to have on our body, um, whereas we know that some people have a preference for um, a higher workload than others. Um, some people prefer to have a good amount of or a high amount of autonomy in their role and some people prefer to be um, have have very explicit um, rules and steps and and processes to follow. Um, so there's a lot of room for individual difference um, when we come to talking about psychosocial hazards. Um, so we really do need to have broad consultation across the workforce to actually understand, you know, well, we have these, these psychosocial factors present in the workplace, but are they actually hazards in that, you know, are they causing distress? Do they have the potential to cause harm to our workforce? Yeah, so in terms of um, the different approaches, you can do top-down right versus bottom-up. So maybe if you could just explain the difference. I mean, I think you talked about well there, explain why we need to consult at an individual level. Uh, but how, you know, would, would a top-down risk assessment be enough for a regulator to, to look at and go, yeah, you've done your, your bit? Um, so, I mean, a top-down risk assessment is, is generally where we would look at um, the activities that are going to be conducted, um, identify the hazards associated with those activities and then um, decide what are the control measures that we need um, to reduce risk associated with, with those hazards. Um, so workforce consultation in that type of a um, scenario would typically involve having the health and safety representatives from the relevant designated work groups um, participating in that risk assessment um, and, and contributing to that. Um, so again, that approach when we're talking about psychosocial hazards probably isn't as effective because again, um, the, the individual level factors, um, the you know your health and safety representatives aren't necessarily going to have good insight into um, how the members of their designated work groups are feeling about different hazards. They may, but but they may not, um, and they're not likely to have as good an understanding of. Um, the risks associated with with psychosocial hazards um, for the members of their work group. Um, so yeah, that that typical top down approach is probably going to be um, less useful, less accurate, less robust when we're talking about psychosocial hazards. Okay, so what would a good consultation process look like, Joel? Uh, so a good consultation process would really look like engaging with um, as large a portion of the workforce as you can um, and making sure that you are getting um, insights from different segments of the organisation um, because we 
do often see that different um, different roles, different functions, um, and I guess different employee demographic groups uh, will have different hazard profiles within an organisation. Um, and so I guess that the more employees we can get involved in that consultation process, the better off it's going to be. Um, and in terms of the, the types of processes you can use, um, you know, we've got, I guess, quantitative approaches where we can use surveys um, and those types of tools, or we've also got qualitative methods um, where we can do focus groups and interviews um, and, and combinations of those as well. Yeah, and so then how would an organisation evidence that they've done sufficient consultation? Yeah, so you would essentially have, um, if, if you're doing surveys, you would be able to have sort of, you know, the number of responses um, and map the employee demographics so that you can show that you've got representation um, across the different sectors of your organisation. Uh, if you're doing focus groups, you would take sort of attendance lists um, and, again, you would then be able to show um, the, the representation across the organisation. Uh, you would also take or make records of um, the communications um, involved in trying to engage employees in that consultation so that you can show that all employees or a representative group of employees have been invited to engage in consultation. Yeah, I think that's pretty um, pretty straightforward. So if we move to number two then, it's uh, fairly similar to number one. So a documented process for consulting, coordinating and cooperating with other duty holders with whom the PCBU, so again, person conducting a business or undertaking, has a shared duty in relation to psychosocial hazards. Uh, but I guess to unpack that one, who are the, the other duty holders uh, within an organisation in relation to psychological health? Yeah, so other duty holders are, are people who aren't part of your organisation but who you will need to interact with um, as as the PCBU. Uh, so they might be um, sort of third-party contractors that you bring onto your job site, uh, suppliers, um, it could be clients, uh, it could be your building management, it could be other tenants that you're sharing um, a workspace with. Uh, so, yeah, just essentially any other entity um, that you that your workforce is going to be required to interact with or is going to have the potential to interact with um, during the course of their work. Yeah, and beyond what we talked about in terms of, you know, survey records, um, focus group attendance sheets, that sort of thing, is there any other documentation that might be required for this process? So this is this is quite a different process because we're not what we're doing here is saying we have a shared duty because we're all PCBUs and so in this particular location we all share these particular duties um, and so we need to have plans in place between us um, to be really clear about who's going to do what, how each of us are going to discharge our duties and making sure that nothing's falling between, between the cracks and making sure that there is alignment where there needs to be alignment, um, where there's interactions. Um, so, for example, if we've got um, suppliers making a delivery to a warehouse, for example, um, it's around, you know, um, the introduction of psychosocial hazards there may be around um, behaviours and sort of different acceptable standards of behaviour between um, the two organisations and so coming to agreements about how those workers are going to interact with each other in those scenarios um, it might be related to workload, um, so looking at balancing workload for when those deliveries are scheduled versus um, sort of the competing demands on the um, 
on the warehouse employees, for example. So look, looking at those types of things. So where, where are there interfaces where we do both have that duty and how are we going to make sure that um, the approaches or the, the controls that we have in place to manage that duty don't conflict? Yeah, okay. Um, so what sort of evidence would the uh, inspector be asking for if they were to come in and say, can you demonstrate that you've done this? Yeah, so you would want to see essentially um, evidence that you've met with um, so that you, you've identified all of those um, shared duty holders um, that you've had, yeah, uh, some sort of a meeting with them. That could be an agenda um, with attendees and then sort of action items um, and, and, you know, sort of what's been agreed by who um, and then an action plan and sort of showing progress against completion of that action plan. All right, terrific. Okay, um, moving on to number three, documented key psychosocial hazards for the whole organisation and specific teams. Uh, so if we unpack that one, what is a psychosocial hazard to start with, Joel? Yep, um, probably should have started with that. Um, so a psychosocial hazard is anything in the design, management or social constructs of work that have the potential to cause stress or psychological harm. Okay. So some examples of that would be things like workload, low job control, or, you know, lack of autonomy, uh, poor supervisor support, lack of role clarity, um, things like that, right? So anything that can cause either significant levels of stress or distress um, or things that are ongoing kind of levels of distress that have the potential to cause harm over time. Yeah, so I guess we've got sort of the, the, the big ones that we know are likely to cause um, significant distress on a single exposure, if we like, so bullying, harassment, violence, um, th those types of things. Um, and then we've got others that will tend to have more of a cumulative impact over time. Um, so, yeah, I guess being aware that there are kind of those different severities um, of hazards as well. Yeah. So um, we have here, uh, so documented psychosocial hazards for the whole organisation and specific teams. Why, why would it be important when it comes to psychosocial hazards to document them separately rather than just have a, at a company level, these are our main hazards? Um, so, I mean, depending on, on your organisation, um, if you're reasonably large and have any level of complexity, the likelihood is that different teams are going to have different hazards that they're exposed to. Um, and you know, whether that's you've got sort of uh, some teams who have um, interactions with customers or clients, for example, um, you know, that exposes them to the risk of things like occupational violence um, and that kind of thing. Um, whereas, yeah, we could look at, again, sort of from the global perspective, you know, bullying, harassment, th those things are kind of constant hazards. Um but, yeah, different, different occupations or roles will have different hazard exposures. Uh, so it's important that we understand what those are for different teams so that we can have appropriate um, controls in place to address those hazards for those, um, for those groups who may be at a greater risk of hazard exposure. Uh, and in our chat, Sue's actually shared a similar example where, um, you know, uh, it's customer aggression that is one of the key social hazards that they're are concerned about for um, their digital mental health service. Uh, we'll come back to, you know, what sufficient controls might look like for something like that um, later when we get up to that point in the, in the cheat sheet. 
but it's important to understand that, you know, even when things are very obvious, so if you're like in first response or if you are in um, things like content moderation or, you know, anything with direct uh, customer or community interaction, like Joel was saying, we'll be aware of some significant hazards. But often it's the bureaucratic hazards, if you like, the uh, run-of-the-mill stuff like workload or unsupported boss that can also uh, have the potential to cause harm. So we shouldn't just look at those big ticket items that Joel was talking about, but we also need to consider some of those other things um, that, that can have the potential to cause harm. Um, and so how would we document the psychosocial hazards for different parts of the organisation? Um, so it should really come through the consultation. Um, so basically, as you're doing that consultation, you'll identify what the hazards are. Um, and it's just a matter of recording those, whether that's in minutes or if you're having it sort of through a survey, um, then you'll have your survey report um, that, that captures that. So uh, I think just your usual um, methods of, of recording that type of information. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so number four is demonstrate consideration of the severity, frequency and duration of psychosocial hazard exposures and how various psychosocial hazards combine to increase risk in determining control measures. Uh, so there's a couple of things there. So first of all, why is it important to consider severity, frequency and duration of psychosocial hazard exposure? Um, so again, this comes back to the nature of psychosocial hazards um, and, and I guess how they're different to uh, a lot of physical safety hazards. Um, so and as we've been talking about, we do know that um, a lot of hazards have cumulative impact um, over time. So it, it's a little bit like um, understanding the risk of um, industrial hearing loss, for example. Um, it, it's not just exposure to noise. We need to know, well, yeah, how loud is the noise that someone's going to be exposed to potentially? But we also need to know how frequently they're going to be exposed to it and how long the noise is going to last before we can come up with a uh, um, indicator of whether that person is at risk of hearing loss or not. Um, and so the same then can be said for psychosocial hazards that, you know, a one-off experience of um, your boss having a bad day and being a bit abrupt um, is probably fine. But if you've got a boss that's just consistently rude and dismissive and doesn't listen and doesn't have time um, to give you the support you need, um, that's going to gradually erode away and, and have a greater impact on your mental health than, than just a one-off instance. Uh, so we do need to look at those three um, data points to get a good understanding of where there is actually risk to somebody. Yeah, another good example we like to use there is, you know, you could work 60 to 80 hours in a week and you could be quite exhausted by the end of the week but not have a psychological injury. Uh, but do that for weeks or months on end, and that greatly increases the chances that that will turn into burnout or a, a more significant psychological injury. Um, what about then, why is it important to consider how various psychosocial hazards combine? Yeah. Uh, well, again, because they're, they're tricky things, psychosocial hazards, um, sometimes they can, well, the factors, I guess, rather than hazards, sometimes they can actually be uh, protective or, or promoting of mental health and sometimes they can be harmful depending on um, how they combine. Uh, so if we take work overload as an example, um, you know, when work overload or high workload rather um, is combined with high autonomy and good supervisor support, um, a lot of the time when people have that type of a working environment, they are able to experience uh, what we would call flourishing, which is a state of positive mental health where they're sort of in flow and they're, they're 
really um, enjoying their work and they're doing very well. Um, if we took work overload and combined that with workplace incivility and low autonomy, um, that's sort of the, the ingredients for burnout. Um, so really we can see there one work factor, high workload, um, that can actually be a positive or a negative depending on how it's interacting with those other hazards as well as how it's interacting with individual preferences. Yeah, so we know with psychosocial hazards they can combine um, to create greater risk more so than a lot of physical hazards. So if you think about things like working at heights, working in confined spaces, trip hazards, uh, they can all be mutually exclusive, whereas with psychosocial hazards they tend to, uh, yeah, like you say, interact and combine and to, to cause the risk, the potential of uh, harm. So how then do we go about documenting that we've considered these things, um, Joel? Um, so I think that's probably where things like your um, your existing risk management documents come into it. And so, um, yeah, populating those, um, your hazards in, into your risk register, for example. Um, but again, I guess the evidence that you've considered that, um, you would need to do that um, generally through um, focus groups would be the, the main way that people could currently do it outside of using uh, the tool that we've developed in, in Flourish DX. Yeah, so we're pretty excited about that new tool. In fact, um, the next webinar series that kicks off from next week will discuss, um, I guess, our multi-year uh, process that we've been going through to develop a tool that looks at severity, frequency and duration of psychosocial hazard exposure and then using machine learning to um, look at the various interactions of different hazards and how they can combine to, to cause risks. So uh, very exciting because uh, I would argue that that is actually the first true objective psychosocial risk assessment in market. So um, please join us for that webinar if you haven't already registered. Uh, okay, number five though, due consideration of the aspects of work and worker demographics that influence risk of psychological harm. Okay, so what sort of worker demographics should we be mindful of here? Yeah, so what we're thinking about there are um, groups of workers who are known to be more vulnerable to psychological ill health or more vulnerable to particular types of psychosocial hazards. Uh, so if we're thinking about young workers, um, women, LGBTQI+, um, disabled workers, so th 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 those sorts of cohorts um, who we know are likely to, I guess, have... Um, particular presentations of hazards, experience hazards with greater frequency and severity um, and just have additional challenges sometimes um, in addition to, to managing those hazards. Yeah, and how do we document that? Um, so I think that that's sort of identifying who those workers are um, and making sure that we've, um, you know, if we've got, either qualitative or quantitative data that we're collecting around risk exposure or, or hazard exposure, um, making sure that we're able to capture the hazard exposure experience of those different um, workers. All right, terrific. Okay, number six, we're just past the halfway point. Documented controls at the organisation level and team level to reduce risk to a LARP. So um, first of all, what's a LARP? A LARP is as low as reasonably practicable. Yeah. Um, and that basically means that um, 
whether whether or not something is reasonably practicable is basically looking at what would be the cost of introducing this control and compare that to the risk reduction that that control would offer. And if there is gross disproportion between the cost versus the risk, so if the cost is grossly disproportionate to the risk reduction, um, then you would say that it's um, the the risk is already reduced to a LARP. Yeah. Okay. Terrific. So. Um when we consider controls, um, this is something I guess that the regulators have been very vocal about. Um, you can think about the hierarchy of controls. And when we talk about the hierarchy, we're talking about the, the most effective controls being, or most effective way to deal with a hazard is through elimination. If we get rid of the hazard altogether, there is no potential for harm. Um, and if not, then we need to think about um, introducing controls, ranging from things like job redesign uh, through to administrative controls through to PPE. Um, so in relation to, I guess, psychosocial, um, risk controls, uh, what would they generally look like and where would they be documented for an organization? Yeah. So I think, um, just to clarify the model regs say that you don't need to use a hierarchy of control, um, Queensland and the Commonwealth, um, regulations have excluded that particular clause. So you do need to apply a hierarchy of controls um, for your psychosocial hazards. Um, and the um, regulator in Queensland in their uh, code of practice have um, explained that work redesign um, is equivalent to a substitution control. So essentially what we're, what we're talking about there in work redesign is, you know, we've identified that um, there's a system of work in the organisation that, that's contributing to distress. So um, let's say that it's our um, annual performance appraisal process. Um, maybe it's really opaque. People aren't clear on what their performance objectives are um, and the process by which um, people are evaluated um, isn't, isn't clear, um, isn't transparent and, and people don't feel like they have um, the ability to influence that. Um, in any way. And so to reduce the levels of distress associated with that, we would look at redesigning that process uh, to improve transparency, um, to improve sort of opportunities for employees to have input into it, etc. And so what we're doing there is we're taking a system of work that we know is creating harm and we're substituting it with a system of work that is less likely to create harm. Yeah, and I guess, so that's a really great example of, of, of work redesign or actually addressing the psychosocial hazard at that substitution level, like you say. Uh, and the, regulation, the regulators have been quite vocal in most states about saying things like training um, and policies um, aren't going to cut it. Uh, and they shouldn't be seen as supportive controls um, alongside work redesign or elimination strategies. Yeah, and in the draft Victorian regs, we've actually seen them explicitly say that work redesign must be your primary control and you can then augment or support with um, training and administrative um, controls, but that you need to be looking at work redesign as your primary uh, control. So we, we typically would see those documented controls um, within the, the, the company risk register, right? Uh, and most risk registers I've seen, um, particularly over the last few years, you'll have your, your key hazards uh, and it might just be psychosocial hazards is like the hazard and it's just that's it for the organisation. And then they'll have things like EAP and bullying harassment policy. Um, so we see some very low level 
in terms of effectiveness controls and more administrative or PPE type controls, uh, I would argue. Um, so that's something that looks like it needs to be improved for many organisations in this new era. Yeah, and look, EAP is typically a mitigation control, not a prevention control as well. So it's important to um, not only look at the the hierarchy um, in terms of effectiveness, but also whether it's uh, uh, designed to prevent harm or whether it's designed to re- limit the severity of, of harm escalation once, once that harm has occurred. Um, and so usually the EAP is uh, something that people will contact once they're already in some level of distress. Yeah, if you think about a physical health analogy, it's like giving people three to six sessions of free physio because they work in a job that requires manual labour. Um, it doesn't prevent the harm from occurring. It helps people get quick treatment if they start to see some symptoms. Yes. Yeah. All right, so that's number six. Number seven, demonstrated controls applying work redesign, not simply admin policy controls. I guess we've talked through that one in number six. Mm-hmm. So um, we talked about the importance of that. Uh, and, again, that might appear in your risk register. Uh, also thinking about, though, Joel, one thing that we picked up earlier is that, you know, you might have company-level controls, but you might also have team-specific controls. So again, it might be role specific hazards, like we talked about customer facing roles versus office based roles where there is no customer facing uh, responsibilities. It might be things like first responders. Um, so we need to think about, yeah, not just uh, organization risk registers, but team specific risk registers potentially. Yeah. And again, that comes back to um, that initial process of, of hazard identification. Um, and risk assessment that you've conducted, um, you know, where you do have that information about different team exposures so that you can actually target your actions um, or well, understand what what are the actions that are required um, by exploring those results with the team and understanding actually what are the, the drivers and enablers of this hazard manifesting um, and then really target your interventions at those particular things. So it might be like a team level um, intervention. It might be an organisational level intervention. It really depends on um, the, the outcome of that exploration. All right, number eight, uh, documented assessment evaluation of controls to determine their effectiveness. So um, first of all, why is it important to evaluate controls? Um, well, because we need to know whether or not they're doing what they're designed to do. Um, that's how we demonstrate that we're reducing risk. Um, if you're, you're, con- you're looking at me like I'm an idiot, Joel. I'm just doing <laughs> it to make the listeners aware. <laughs> um, how you're interpreting my um, facial expression is on you, Jason, not on me. <laughs> um, yeah, so look, if, if we're not able to show that our controls are effective, then we're not able to really show that we're reducing risk. I mean, we can, we can reassess um, and that can be a way of showing that our controls are effective. Um, so by sort of redoing our, our consultation um, after we've implemented those controls and, and given them sufficient time um, to take hold, um, we can actually evaluate them by, by reassessing and saying, yeah, um, you know, based on these results, um, that indicates that, um, that the controls that we've put in place have been effective. And we can also do other types of, of evaluation as well, um, you know, like, like we would um, for a training program, hopefully, um, you know, if you're sending somebody for a particular um, competence uplift, um, then typically there is an assessment of competence at the end of that. Um, so you're able to evaluate whether that was actually effective or not. Yeah. And if you have regular um, or periodic um, risk assessments or hazard identification processes in place uh, or building them, um, then, yeah, you can definitely compare 
um, how you've gone in one uh, assessment versus the previous one to see if the uh, controls have been effective or not. Um, and then you have the documentation there as well. So it's a fairly easy one if you are, you know, going through this process of, of continuous improvement, right? You know, psychosocial risk assessment is not a one-off activity. We're supposed to put controls in and then continue to evaluate those controls and whether in fact any other hazards have emerged um, in the interim. Cool. Uh, documented timeframe and process for reassessing psychosocial hazard exposure. So um, first of all, what is uh, the sort of timeframe that companies need to consider or is there more to think about than just a um, specific timeframe? Yeah, so this um, sort of comes back to the duty to have a, a safe system of work um, and that, that comes under the Act, not the regs. Uh, so this is this is around saying we're not just it, it's it's not enough just to do a single um, a, a single consultation at a at a single point in time and and put some things in place and leave it at that. Um, this needs to be consistent with your risk management cycle of iterative improvement. Um, so we do need to have uh, timeframes in place for when we're planning to reassess um, our psychosocial hazard exposure. Uh, but there are also triggers in the legislation um, that will that sort of require you to um, redo your risk assessment, for example, um, in relation to significant organisational change, um, when new hazards or risks are identified, uh, when it becomes apparent that your existing controls aren't effective, um, when a health and safety representative requests it. Uh, there's probably a couple of others that I can't remember at this point in time, uh, but they're the same triggers uh, that exist for um, the, I guess, your general physical health and safety hazards and, and when those risk assessments need to be um, redone. Uh, but it's also a good idea to have sort of a, um, I guess, a regular periodic reassessment. Um, how frequently you want to do that really depends on your organisation, um, sort of how volatile is the broader um, environment around your organisation, how volatile is um, the internal aspects of your organisation. Um, so there's, yeah, just a lot of individual um, or, or organisation-specific elements there to consider um, when you're determining how frequently you should be doing that. Yeah. Um, and how would we would a company go about documenting that? Um, that would be in your suite of um, probably your your suite of documents that detail your risk management processes. Um, you would have sort of detailed in there what are the triggers for, for needing to redo this risk assessment um, and otherwise what is the periodic periodicity uh, that we're going to do this. Did you just make up a word? No. That is Okay. I'm going to Google it later. Uh, it, it's it's a word that I've heard other regulators use in my nine years of previous work experience. So I didn't make it up, but somebody else maybe did. But all yeah. words are made up if you if you really think about it. This is true. All right, number 10, records of information, training, instruction and supervision provided to workers that is relevant to their role in relation to psychosocial hazards, hazard identification and control measures. Now, I haven't seen this in the model regs. So where does this come from, Joel? Uh, that comes from the Act. Mm -hmm. okay. So, again, it's not specific to psychosocial hazards. Uh, we have a duty to make sure that we're providing workers with information, training, instruction and supervision uh, to enable them to be able to do their role um, and to enable them to do their work in a way that's safe and without risk to health. Um, 
So having records of how we've done that um, is just an easy way to, again, um, show that we are compliant with that. Um, it's also a good way for us to recognise whether there are any gaps um, so we can actually look across our workforce and see, okay, well, these people actually haven't received this um, this particular training or um, instruction um, and so we need to, to fill that gap. Um, so it's just a good way of, of maintaining your own um, line of sight across um, that particular requirement. Uh, okay, it looks like Megan's got your back as well. Period, periodicity <laughs> is a noun and she's given a definition. So well done. Um, so there. So there. You know, no, no, so no. This is why you're the subject matter expert. I'm not just uh, regs but also English language. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, it's Megan. true, actually. I am the go-to person in the office whenever there's a challenge about word usage. Like greenage. um okay so that's uh, hopefully that for our listeners here has uh provided a bit more context in terms of the sorts of things that they need to have in place uh and obviously if they've downloaded the cheat sheet then you know gives them the context behind like why each of these things are included and some broader explanation of what they need to think about uh, with each of these activities um before i put up the next poll question joelle anything else to add um, I don't think so. Okay. No worries. So now that everyone's aware, I guess, of what, um, I guess needs to be in place from a act and regulations perspective in relation to how you're managing psychosocial hazards and their risks, uh, it'd be useful for you to reflect on then what you feel your largest gap is. So, um, this goes through the key ones. So it could be consultation with workers. It might be psychosocial hazard identification at an organization level, it might be the team level. Um, you might still be struggling with how you're going to consider hazard exposure, so that's severity, frequency, and duration. Um, those documented controls that are required following that risk assessment process, um, monitoring plan, um, or training and education for relevant personnel, which is everyone, I guess. So let's have a look. Um, all right, I think this <laughs> pretty that's pretty that's pretty even. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I have not seen a poll like that before. Um, they mm. might be one to share on LinkedIn later. So everyone has <laughs> uh, has identified all of them as largest gaps. So uh, take from that what you will. <laughs> Joelle, how would you comment on that one? I guess we could say that different organisations are focusing on different things and um, everyone's got different challenge areas. Yeah, thanks, Mel. Shows the diversity. <laughs> and, and Estelle said that, yeah, there was definitely more than one there that she could have chosen from. Uh, yeah, so look, we, we do know, and that's, um, you know, obviously why we're doing these education programs, the webinars and um, the podcasts and all the rest to try and provide a broad range of education because there's obviously lots of gaps. This is new territory for a lot of organisations as they seek to apply their psych health and safety um, uh, processes to psychosocial. So uh, interesting. Um all right, so just, just quickly before we open it up to some other Q&A, if you do have any questions, do drop them into the chat now. Just um, briefly, obviously, we've been working in this space for a number of years now, Joel and myself, even before you know starting the Flourish DX journey. Uh, and we have been busy in, over the last five years in particular, building out a suite of resources, both consulting, education and technology to help companies at scale to address all of the things that we talked about today. So if you do have a challenge, then obviously, uh, you know, reach out. You'll find us on LinkedIn. Um, and also, like I mentioned, we do have a, another webinar commencing Thursday next week, 
uh, and we'll be running it two more times after that over the subsequent weeks on uh, using new technologies to predict risk through hazard identification uh, and, and consultation with the workforce. So there's a, a QR code to, to uh, access that. Um, all right, so let's see, was there any questions that you saw, Joel, that came up in the chat that we could answer in the last five minutes that we've got today with uh, the group? Yeah, um, so Natalie has asked if we've got a comparison of different regs for each state or territory. Um, so I've done a review of the regs that are currently in force um, across the different states and as it, it's literally the only difference is, is the one that I mentioned earlier um, around whether or not you need to use the hierarchy of controls um, when you're addressing psychosocial hazards. And so Queensland and Commonwealth um, are requiring the use of the hierarchy of controls. The other states who have the regs in force uh, do not require the hierarchy of controls. So that's the only, uh, I think there's, there's one other regulation that has um, some slightly different wording as well, but that's uh, sort of as a consequence of um, the, the hierarchy of controls um, regulation. So that, that's literally the only difference um, across the states um, in terms of the regs. Uh, the draft regs in Vic have also um, got the reporting requirement. Yeah, yeah. But so that's those, in draft, draft state. Yeah, they're not, they're not in force, um, so we don't know what they're going to look like. Um, the, yeah, the Victorian regs do look significantly different to the, um, the model regs. Um, but, yeah, un until we actually see the, um, the final version of those, we don't really know what that's going to end up looking like. Yeah, and we do know that WorkSafe Victoria have done their bit and really it's just um, a ministerial decision now about when um, they they get put into force, like you say. All right, what was the – any other questions? So we've got one from James. Was that a question or a comment? Oh, no, here we go. Yeah, so James says, uh, we have found that, that we have a lot of intersecting risks in risk registers which have both physical and psychosocial aspects. So musculoskeletal would be a good example of that. Thoughts on having these listed as discrete psychosocial risk versus incorporating into the same risk? Um, look, I think that there's probably, if we're looking at targeting our control uh, measures to work redesign, um, then it's, I think, useful to combine them when you're looking at, you know, th this, is the, this is the outcome that we're seeing and this is sort of the, the cluster of hazards that are contributing to this outcome or this risk of, of this particular outcome, what is it that's causing this cluster of hazards to present in the way that they are and cluster in the way that they are? Um, so it does actually make sense, I think, to, to group those together and actually target your interventions at that, you know, what again, whatever are the organisational drivers that are actually leading to that cluster of hazards presenting. Um, so I think that that's a really targeted approach to take. Um, and I think that's useful, uh, but then you still do also, I think, need to to take that wider view, um, especially when we're looking at those, you know, bullying, harassment, violence type hazards, and and also addressing those as um, as individual hazards. Yeah, terrific. Uh, Mel uh, has confirmed that because she's based in South Australia, she's heard the regulator there say that they will have something in by the end of the year. So um, good to get that confirmation from someone local. Uh, Rumbi has asked, could we get a list of the different types of evidence we can use? It sounds like work, Joel. Yeah. Maybe we, can do um, <laughs> Maybe we can do another webinar on that. 
different types of evidence. Might uh, well, need, uh, might need more clarity on on that. Yeah, I mean, we have uh, talked about um, and tried to give some examples of the different types of evidence for the different uh, ten different activities that are, that are on the cheat sheet. Uh, we will be releasing this via our normal EDM on Tuesday as a special podcast episode. So um, you're welcome to re-listen back um, and <laughs> write that down or we might need a transcription of this one, Joel, so people can find it easy in the text. Uh, we'll see what we can do, um, but we haven't got them all documented down, no. But uh, definitely within our platform, the FlourishTX platform, that uh, if you use it as intended, then it does document a lot of those things that you do require. Okay. Um, okay. One last question from Kate. How can we focus on work groups during risk assessment in a small site where data is hard to make anonymous? Um, so I suppose in, in that situation where you can't collect anonymous data, um, it can be useful to use a third party, um, to, to do that um, if you yeah if you're doing I guess um, qualitative um, work uh, yeah if you if you're using a third party as sort of intermediary there then they're kind of collecting that data and reporting it up so they're still able to report it up um, in a de-identified format um, so I think that that's probably the, the best approach to take in that situation um, if you don't have enough people to be able to anonymize um, quantitative results, um, then yeah, having having a third party come in and, and run a focus group would be um, the best way to do that. If, if um, you feel that the, um, the workforce want that anonymity to be able to feel that they can speak freely. All right. Uh, do we have time for one more question, Joel? Mm. Um, well, we've got one minute. All right. So the last question then, that was the last question. This is now the last question. When assessing where psychosocial hazards may combine, is it best to identify this combination from assessing the activities or roles through a risk assessment or is there a more effective approach to assess this? Um, yeah, so this I think is is really comes through your um, your qualitative consultation. So our recommended approach after you've done a quantitative data collection um, is to then follow up um, at exploring particular at risk groups, um, and so that's really where you're going to get that that better understanding of you know what are the combinations or how are these hazards combining and, and impacting um, our workforce. Hopefully, uh, that was a suitable response. Yep. Thank you. Okay. I think we're done. Thanks. Thanks for your confidence in me, Jason. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, thank you again for joining this webinar. Uh, we are on a cadence of doing this pretty much weekly. We just try and fit them in around other client work that we do. Uh, and we do promote them through our EDM. If you're not part uh, on the EDM, if you just go to the flourishdx.com uh, website, put a forward slash join in there and you'll be able to sign up so that you can uh, hear about these webinars uh, you know, in the weeks leading up to when we run them. Uh, but thanks again, everyone, for coming along today and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks, everyone.
You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com. 